I enjoy hot coffee and on occasion iced coffee, but I don't like lukewarm coffee. Cold water is refreshing on a hot day. Hot water is comforting on a cold day. But, you know, lukewarm, it's, it's just not my cup of tea. I don't, I don't care for it. Well, the church at Laodicea was neither hot nor cold. They were lukewarm. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're looking at the church at Laodicea, part of our study of the book of Revelation. In chapter 3, verses 14 to 22, Jesus addresses the angel or the pastor at the church of Laodicea, and he begins his admonition to this church by referring to himself as the Amen, the faithful and true witness. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogy now as he explains why it is Jesus refers to himself as the Amen. When Jesus calls himself the Amen, as we've seen him do in a number of the appellations that are given to him in that first chapter vision, he is affirming his own deity. Now, there are many ways to get to the deity of Christ. Sometimes there are direct quotes from the Bible that affirm his deity, but many times there are descriptions that can only apply to God himself. Now, in our English Bible, sometimes the word amen doesn't come through as consistently as it should as it does in other languages of the world. For instance, in John 5, verse 24, the NASB that most of you have this morning or the ESV reads, truly, truly, I say to you, uh, the King James says, verily, verily, I say unto you. The Holman Christian says, I assure you. The Net Bible says, I tell you the solemn truth. But the Greek New Testament, as it reads in the uh, Slavic Bibles, reads, amen, amen, I say to you. So when Jesus wanted to underscore a very, very important truth, where in essence he says, pull your ear up and listen carefully, he'd say, truly, truly, or amen, amen, because he wanted you to get the truth. Amen is the last word, so to speak. He is the amen because he is God's last word. The writer of the Hebrew says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets and in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. So it's fitting that Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, should assign to himself this title, the amen. Amen? All right, good. Glad you're listening. So the Lord Jesus, he's the last word. He is indeed the amen. And I say that to underscore in your thinking that lukewarmness is a curse because it denies Christ's truthfulness. Lukewarmness denies the truth that Jesus' ways are the best ways and that they are worthy of our pursuit. Secondly, not only does lukewarmness deny the truthfulness of God, lukewarmness is a curse because it denies Christ's faithfulness. We read now in verse 14, to the angel, the church, and Laodicea, write the amen, the faithful and true 
witness. Not only is he the amen, making his word the final and conclusive word, he's also the faithful and true witness. Jesus is describing himself as totally reliable in contrast to the unreliable, unfaithful Laodiceans. Everything that he says is truth, and so therefore he is faithful to carry it out to do that which he has said. God cannot lie. Titus says, Hebrews 6 says, it is impossible for God to lie. Moses wrote, God is not like a man that he would ever lie. So he is the forever true witness. Jesus, in essence, is saying, I can only tell you the truth, and I can only do the truth. And yet, when someone is lukewarm, in essence, by their lifestyle, they are denying that Jesus is the faithful and true witness. Basically, they're saying, Jesus, I know you said that you came to give me life and to give it me, to me more abundantly, but that is not obviously true. You're not faithful to what you promised. And so because I do not really believe what you said about yourself, I'm going to find the abundant life out there in the world somewhere. By my lukewarmness, that is precisely what the believer is saying. Now, I don't think that a Christian would typically openly, brazenly put it that way. But in practice, that is precisely what they are doing. How do we know he is the faithful and the true witness? Well, look, keep reading. He is the faithful and true witness. Why? Because he is the beginning of the creation of God. You can know he is the amen, the faithful and true witness, because he is the beginning of the creation of God. Now, what does that mean? Now, I should say parenthetically while we're here that this was the verse that started one of the earliest heresies in the third century church, a denial that Jesus was God. It's called Arianism, A-R-I-A-N, not A-R-Y-A-N. There was the Arian race that Hitler tried to propagate and say that white people were superior, the German white people uh, over all of the other races of the world. That's not what we're talking about. And that obviously error in wickedness continues to this day. And it's only a small way today. You haven't seen anything yet. Before we're done with the revelation, we're going to see that there's going to be ethnic wars across the planet like man has never known before. What we are witnessing in this past weekend is just a foretaste of what is coming during the time of the Great Tribulation. So we're not talking about Arianism. We're talking about Arianism, and there's a difference. And Arian, A-R-I-A-N, was a heretic who denied the deity of Christ. And he would use verses like this. See, he's the beginning of creation. That is, he is created, they say. No, Jesus was never created. When children come into the office, I sometimes ask them, how old is Jesus? What am I digging for? I am wanting them to see that you cannot age Jesus, that there was never a time when he was not, that he is the eternal God. There was a time when he didn't have a human body. That's what we celebrate at the incarnation. But he is the eternal God, co-equal, in coexistence with the Father and with the Spirit. He was never created. And it's so clear in the Greek text, but listen, even if you didn't read Greek, you would know, well, God can't contradict himself. Scripture interprets Scripture. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And there are many clear 
designations of his deity and many clear descriptions that could only apply to God, like the one we just read, the Amen, one of the titles for Yahweh in the Old Testament. The word here is arche, beginning, and it is used in the Bible to describe the source of all creation. And if you read Colossians, as this church did, they would understand that. Let me read Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This verse, Colossians 1.16, informs me that it was the Son of God who was actually doing the creating. Now, obviously, God is inseparable, and so sometimes the Father is credited with creation. Sometimes in Job, for instance, the Spirit is credited with creation. But here, God the Son, all things were created through Him and for Him. There's not a blade of grass that grows on the earth that the Lord Jesus did not create. Now, here on this map slide, I want to imprint in your minds these cities and the distances between the three. There's Laodicea, there's Colossae, so the book of Colossians, and Heropolis, which I've already mentioned this morning. Laodicea, Colossae, and, um, and Heropolis formed a triangle of sorts. There are three closely situated cities. Laodicea is 10 miles from Colossae, and it's 13 miles from Laodicea. So with that said, these churches are mentioned. I just mentioned Epaphras. Let me read another text, and I'll make my point. In, a, in Colossians 4.13 of Epaphras, Paul said this, For I testify for him, for Epaphras, that he has a deep concern for you, that is the Colossians, and for those who are in Laodicea, that's 10 miles away and uh, that Jesus is addressing from Coloss in Heropolis, which is six miles away from Laodicea. So these three churches are mentioned here. What I'm trying to get you to think is that Coloss was just a stone's throw away and they understood the truths that came through the letter to the Colossians. Let me read Colossians 4.16. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. There you go. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. So they understood that all things were created by him and for him. Not that he was created, but he was the source. He was the beginning of creation. And so Jesus is reminding them that lukewarmness denies his truthfulness as the amen, and it denies his faithfulness that everything he says and all the promises he make are true and worthy of your trust. And we know that because he is the source of all creation. He is your creator creator God. He knows everything about you. Look, when I get a car, I read through the owner's manual because I figure all the guys who created this little beast know how it should best run. And so I say, well, I changed my oil in hand and the plugs here and the air filter here. And, you know, because they designed it. God, your creator designed you in every square inch of you. And it denies that he is faithful and worthy of your trust as your creator when you choose to live a lukewarm life. Third, lukewarmness is a curse because it denies our usefulness. It denies our usefulness. Verse 15 begins, I know your deeds. Suppose you received a phone call this afternoon. It's an anonymous caller. And they said, I know what you did. 
you would either feel gratified or ashamed or maybe even paranoid that someone else knew your deeds, depending on the circumstances. When Jesus said these words to the church at Laodicea, he was basically saying to them, I know your deeds, and this was not a reason to rejoice. This was a reason to mourn. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. Now, archaeologists have uncovered some interesting facts about this city. There was an aqueduct that ran from Heropolis that came all the way into the city of uh, Laodicea that was their water source. Every city needed a water source. Here's a picture. You can visit today the, the hot springs of Heropolis. And so it was carried on an aqueduct. When it left Heropolis, they were hot, the waters. And they were good to drink. I know some hot waters you can't drink. You can drink these. But by the time they got to Laodicea, they weren't cold, they weren't hot, they were lukewarm. I enjoy hot coffee and on occasion iced coffee, but I don't like lukewarm coffee. Cold water is refreshing on a hot day. Hot water is comforting on a cold day. But, you know, lukewarm, it's, it's just not my cup of tea. I don't, I don't care for it. Well, the church at Laodicea was neither hot nor cold. They were lukewarm. And so Jesus applies a truth that ran through their minds in the spiritual realm. Unlike the cold water that the city of Colossae enjoyed, unlike the hot springs that comforted the people in Heropolis, in this city, they had lukewarm water. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. Now, according to the analogy that Jesus uses here, being cold or being boiling hot are good things as opposed to being lukewarm. Think your way through this. Again, cold water on a hot day is refreshing and hot water is comforting on a cold, a cold day. But lukewarm water is neither. And so Jesus uses this analogy. I'd rather have you cold or hot. Why? Why would he say that? Now, I can understand why he would say, I'd like you to be spiritually hot for me, passionate for me, out and out sold out for me, living for me. But why would he say, I'd rather have you to be cold for me than to be lukewarm? Well, obviously, if you are on fire for Christ, then you are living a life worthy of the Lord Jesus. On the other hand, if you are cold and an outright apostate, an outright unbeliever and headed for hell, at least people have your number. But when you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, claiming to be a believer, born again and dwelt by the Spirit of God as these people were, then by your lifestyle, you are denying that Jesus is worthy. By your lifestyle, you are becoming a stumbling block and people are pointing the finger at you and say, look you, hypocrite, you Christian, who say one thing and do another. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I would rather have you out and out against me than to pretend to be born again and serve me half-heartedly. Uh, you're thinking, well, look, I, I suppose wouldn't it be better to be lukewarm and on your way to heaven than to be cold and on your way to hell? Well, Jesus makes it clear that's not the way he's thinking. Look at verse 16. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth it is the lukewarm Christian that is keeping so many people out of salvation, out of heaven, and God loves the salvation of souls. 
The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Listen, I believe it's just 10% of the American church were on fire for Jesus. We could turn this nation around. We could turn it upside down. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The word spit or spew in the King James is rather a polite term. It's the Greek word emeo, and it's a much more graphic term. The Net Bible and the New King James captures it. I will vomit you out of my mouth. For a church like Laodicea, to have come in contact with the great truths that they had learned even in the letter to the Colossians alone, to have learned and to believe those truths, that they are saved by the grace of God Almighty and to live indifferently just made God sick. Now, how do you get lukewarm water out of the spigot? Well, you turn on the hot and you add some cold and you kind of neutralize it and you get it lukewarm. That's the way some Christians are. One foot in the world and one foot in the church. They come to church on Sunday, but they live a different life during the week. And they are denying Jesus' worth. You cannot be a fence-sitter and be pleasing to the Lord as a believer. C.T. Stott, I read his autobiography as a young man, as a relatively new Christian, and he was a medical doctor in England. He was raised in the lap of luxury. I mean, they were worth millions. And of course, uh, he recognized at one point in his life that he was one of those lukewarm, apathetic Christians. He ended up making his life right, and he actually went and spent the rest of his life serving as a missionary in Africa. Now, a lot of you know at least a stanza out of the famous poem he wrote. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. But what many people do not know is that he wrote that poem in response to a tract that he read by a so-called atheist. And God used the tract of an atheist to move him out of his lukewarmness. Let me read a portion of that tract as it comes from his autobiography. Did I firmly believe the atheist wrote, as millions say they do, that the knowledge and practice of religion in this life influences destiny in another, religion would mean to me everything. I would cast away earthly enjoyments as dross, earthly cares as follies, and earthly thoughts and feelings as vanity. Religion would be my first waking thought, and my last image before sleep sank me into unconsciousness. I should labor in its cause alone. I would take thought for the mar of eternity alone. I would esteem one soul gained for heaven worth a life of suffering. Earthly consequences should never stay my mind nor seal my lips. Earth, its joys and its griefs would occupy no moment of my thoughts. I would strive to look upon eternity alone and on the immortal souls around me, soon to be everlastingly happy or everlastingly miserable. I would go forth to the world and preach to it in season and out of season. And my text would be, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Now that was an atheist mocking the Christians of his day. And C.T. Studd was absolutely convinced that what that man said was true because it was consistent with the Bible and his life was not consistent. And so he writes that he was determined, I quote, from that time forth, my life should be consistent and I set myself to know what God's will is for me. 
Stud knew that Christ was not worthy of lukewarmness. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Now, please do not miss the audience to whom Jesus is speaking. He's not speaking to the out-and-out sinner. He's not speaking to the one who's cold. He's not speaking to the one who's passionately living for Jesus. He's not speaking to the arrogant man who raises his fist boldly, brazenly, hatefully in the face of God, ignoring him, rejecting him. He is speaking to the lukewarm, fence-straddling Christian. Now, sometimes we call these people carnal Christians, but listen, some of those whom we call carnal Christians who are lukewarm are not Christians at all. They're actually lost. But listen, and we'll talk about that before we're done. We have a lot of lukewarm Christians in the era in which we live. And remember, at the end of the age, before Jesus comes again, what will typify the average Christian is their love will grow cold. That's what Jesus said. And I believe that's the age we are living in, a day of gross apathy. We have mild-mannered, weak preachers who are afraid to tell the truth, preaching to mild-mannered Christians, producing mild-mannered disciples, rather than people who are passionate for Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you why so many people are bored when they come on Sunday morning, because the preachers are boring, because they're bored with Jesus. How can you be bored with Jesus? How can you be bored with the one who gave everything for you, who redeemed you? How can you be lukewarm? Now, remember, these are people who came to church every Sunday. They weren't forsaking the assembly. They were there. They were singing the hymns. But there are Christians today who are lukewarm. They spend more time on their Facebook page than they do in the Holy Scripture. They come here and they sing the hymns, and as soon as they get into the parking lot, they turn on the secular worldly music. They know little about praying, maybe nothing about fasting, and they can't even believe God to give 10 cents out of a dollar. Lukewarm, apathetic, fence-straddling Christians, me-centered Christians. Now, that's the curse of lukewarmness. Let's talk now about the cause of lukewarmness, the cause of lukewarmness. Half the problem sometimes in solving a problem is seeing that there is a problem, but also to identify the cause of the problem. And so Dr. Jesus, like the great physician, underscores the cause of the problem again on three levels. First, he reminds us that lukewarmness is caused by warped values. Verse 17 begins, because you say I am rich and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable. Now the church in Laodicea is so different from the church in Smyrna for they thought they were poor, but Jesus said they were rich. These people thought they were rich and Jesus said you're wretched and miserable. Perhaps here we have a hint of why this church that was once a great church had declined spiritually. They had probably become proud of their ministry, and they were evaluating their church by human standards and not by the divine standards of Jesus Christ. Listen, it doesn't matter what the church growth guy thinks of our church. What matters is what Jesus thinks about this church. Had you visited Laodicea and you said, hey, I'm a Christian from Ephesus, I'm looking for a church. Oh, let me tell you about First Church Laodicea. They're a great church. You need to go to, they've got a magnificent building. What a facility, what programs. Now, I know they didn't have buildings at this time. They met at homes. Oh, but you should see the home they meet in. It's a magnificent, beautiful, Beverly Hills kind of home. And the things they have going on, you need to go there. And the way they evaluated their success was warped. 
They didn't really see themselves, as Jesus is going to point out, the way they needed to see themselves. And we have the same problem today. We have people who come to hear sermons and we think, oh, tell them, Pastor. I wish so-and-so were here today to hear that message. If they were here, wow, you would have gotten them. I told you once about the story about the man who would leave the church every Sunday and meet the preacher at the door and said, Pastor, that was a great sermon. You really got them today. You really combed their hair. And week after week after week, he'd make these statements. And what the pastor knew is this man didn't see that he was a problem. And sometimes as he would prepare his sermon, he'd think about this man. He'd pray for this man. He loved this man. He'd, he, he, he would think about what he was going to say as it related to this man. And week after week, he'd meet him at the door. Pastor, you got him again. You comb their hair. Well, one day there was a terrible snowstorm and only one man showed up, this one man. The pastor thinks, I'm loaded for bear. I'm going to get him. And he got up with all the passion and fury of his heart and he preached the word, and he ran to the exit and waited for the man to come and meet him. And the man shook his hand and said, Pastor, I wish the rest of the congregation was here. You really would have gotten them. You would have really combed their hair. Some of you say, tell them, Dr. Brogy. Get them, Dr. Brogy. Comb their hair. That's Laodicea. They didn't see it. They were blinded to the truth that they were lukewarm, and it was very, very sad. Secondly, not only did they have warped values, they didn't see themselves the way they needed to see themselves, they also had lukewarmness that was caused by self-confidence, by self-confidence. Now in verse 17, because I say you have become wealthy, you do not know you are poor. Now this church had a very different opinion of itself. It evaluated itself and was pleased with itself and its circumstances. But just like the citizens in this affluent city who said, I've become wealthy and have need of nothing, these people had done that in the spiritual realm when in reality they were spiritual paupers. Now we may admire people who can take care of themselves in the physical realm, that they don't have to beg, that they've got plenty of money. And sometimes prosperity becomes a stumbling block where it blinds us in the spiritual realm. And so Jesus will say on the night before he's crucified, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The second law of third dynamics says that something must be added from the outside or the system will eventually decay or die. So without electricity, the water heater goes cold. Without refrigerant, the air conditioning does not work. And without Jesus working in and through you, you become lukewarm. And that's where these people were. I have need of nothing. And they did not understand just how great their need was. Third, the cure goes on. Lukewarmness uh, the, is caused by spiritual blindness. It's caused by spiritual blindness. Again, the cause, it's caused by spiritual blindness. Let me highlight the third problem he spells out. Because you say, I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, the reality is you do not know that you are blind and naked. Jesus was saying, you think you've got it all together. You think you are looking fine when in reality you are naked. You have no clothes on and you cannot even see that you are naked. The members of the church at Laodicea had bought into the lie that they had all they needed. 
but they were basing their needs on worldly standards. And in so doing, they were merely giving lip service to God. But the Lord doesn't want half-hearted love. He doesn't want our commitment to be divided between Himself and the world, because when we do that, we're being lukewarm in our affection, just like the church at Laodicea. And God says when we're like that, He'll spit us out of His mouth. To listen again to this or any of the messages in our study of the Revelation, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV10. And when you contact us, please consider a one-time or recurring gift. Search the Scriptures is supported through the prayerful and financial support of listeners like you. Tomorrow we'll conclude our look at lukewarm Christians as we search the Scriptures. (music) 